Shall we bow our heads and pray? Father, we thank you so much for your word, and uh, we pray you'd speak to us this morning. You'd help us to get to know you better. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we recently uh, visited this exhibition as a family in London with some friends called Small um, is Beautiful. And it was a fascinating display of miniature art. There were kind of 1 to 12 scale dollhouses, 1 to 87 um, models, and then models that were so tiny you could only see the sculpture that was crafted in the eye of a needle through a high-powered microscope. It really got you to look at the world in a new way. And we looked at the world in a new way this week, didn't we, when we uh, saw Prince Charles deliver the Queen's speech, uh, perhaps a little picture of the future. I wonder what picture you would draw of the Christian faith if you had to capture the Christian message in a, a little miniature. What stories would you tell to give a sense of what it's all about? What kind of sketch lines would you have? If you're not yet sure about the Christian faith, what pictures do you have in your mind? What colors would you use to color those pictures in if you could find out some more? Well, my guess is none of us would instinctively reach for Genesis chapter 14. Um, if you're not a, a Christian yet, it might just sound like irrelevant history, maybe even a myth. And if you are a believer, you'd probably choose a story that is more likely to find its way into a Sunday school curriculum. But I, I think this ancient story is actually a brilliant miniature picture of the gospel. In fact, the whole book of Genesis sets the scene for the coming of Christ. It does that, um, as, we, as Sam reminded us last week, in a cosmic scale on chapters 1 to 11, and then on a scale by focusing on one family, Abraham's family, from chapters 12 through 50. And there are many like, little lines, sketches, that are kind of added to that picture as you go through the book. But just occasionally a story, a chapter comes along that seems to capture lots of it in one place. And I think Genesis 14 is a chapter like that. It's not obvious at first glance, but it, it reveals significant spiritual realities. It reveals how much we need a Savior. It reveals the victory that the Savior wins for us. And it reveals the glory of the Savior that we have. And to, to help us see those realities, we're going to focus on three scenes where the three main characters in this story all play a leading role. And I hope that whether we're Christian people or not yet this morning, this would encourage us and give us hope. Uh, first of all, verses 1 to 12, Lot's lostness. Lot's lostness. It's a forgotten battle between kings we've never heard of in places we've probably never been. But none of these question marks mean that we're dealing with ancient history. Just as kingdoms today form power alliances amongst themselves and, and support one another in military campaigns to defend one another's interests. It was the same back then. The first four kings in verses 1 and 2 are Mesopotamian, so they're from around modern-day Iraq, and clearly they were pretty powerful nations. They were the overlords of their day. But one day, five puppet kings made a bid for freedom in the 13th year. And then these superpower overlord kings spent a year getting ready and then decided to strike back. Verse 5. In the 14th year, Kedalaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth-Kanine, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh-Kiriathim, 
and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Uh, my son Max um, has a bookshelf stacked full of books about the war. He loves it, finding out about it. And my favorite, I forgot to bring it along this morning, but it's called World War II in Maps. I'm really glad he got it for his birthday, because I like it a lot. Um, it displays everything you want to know in these really easy-to-understand graphics, like the moving position of the front line, um, air raids, troop movements, victories, defeats, everything you want to know. It almost makes you feel like, oh, I kind of understand what it was like to be there. And uh, so in the spirit of that book, I'm going to show us a map to give us a sense of where we are. So these four Mesopotamian kings, they start in the north, because that's what happened. That's, you didn't cross the desert in those days. You went up the Fertile Crescent and then back down from the north. And they begin by defeating the Rephites in Ashtaroth Canaan. And then they come south to the Huzites, the Emites, and the Horites. It's basically an unstoppable march south down that mountain range in the center of um, the Promised Land, just to the east of the Jordan River. And interestingly, it's almost exactly the same route that the people of Israel themselves, the Hebrews, follow 500 years later when they come out of Egypt. And um, they leave Mount Sinai and they go into the Promised Land, but they go that way, up what's called the King's Highway. And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, Moses tells us about those battles. He reminds the people about those battles. And he tells us that these people that we've never heard of were giants. They were huge they were no pushover. Now, if God's people could defeat them under Moses and Joshua, well, that's perhaps not too much of a surprise. They had God on their side. But if these Mesopotamian kings could crush them just like that, one after the other after the other, like dominoes, well, they really must have been a, a force, a military force to be reckoned with. But they're not done yet. Verse 7. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as far as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. So they go all the way down to El Paran near the desert, and then they turn, which I think is near Eilat, if anyone's ever been to Eilat, and then you go back north until they are within spitting distance of these five rebellious kings. Every single enemy has fallen before them. And now it's time for these pesky upstarts to be put in their place. Do you think they stand a chance? Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedileamar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amprophel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. And it's, you're on tenterhooks. What's going to happen? How's the battle going to play out? Verse 10. Talk about anticlimax. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. Armor is donned, chariots are readied, battle lines are drawn up, but it's all over before it's begun. It's as if the kind of war correspondent on the TV doesn't have a battle to talk about. He just says how embarrassing it is when they, when they turn tail and run. It's so embarrassing that they fall or maybe even hide in these sticky pits full of tar or run away to the hills. But why are we told this? Surely there are more exciting and glorious battles from history to think about. Surely there are more close-fought battles that would make a better story. 
Why hasn't this ancient military campaign lost in the sands of history? Well, it would have been if a certain nephew hadn't been caught up in it all. Verse 11. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And my hairdresser was telling me this week about a brother of his. I think he has four brothers and three sisters. They're all back home in Kurdistan. And this one particular brother is always in trouble. And my hairdresser is saying he wants to go back over the summer and kind of try to get him over here. Because he's the only one he'll listen to. And he wants to help his troublesome relative. And I wonder if um, Abraham sometimes felt like that about Lot. Remember in chapter 12, he's just along for the ride. He's along for the ride to Canaan with Uncle Abraham. In chapter 13, he makes a foolish mistake and he, he decides to pitch his tents near Sodom, a city that was already infamous for its wickedness. And now he's a prisoner of war on a military transport north to slavery or even death. To the victor go the spoils. But why is Lot even in the story? After all, the big plot line of Genesis is well, certainly since chapter 12, is God's plan to bless the world through Abraham, through Abraham's descendants. And Lot isn't Abraham's descendant. What are we meant to learn from him? Well, I wonder if we are meant to see ourselves in him. I wonder if Lot's lostness is a picture of our spiritual lostness, a mirror to hold up to ourselves. His need of rescue is a little signpost saying, we need rescue too. Just look at where he's living before events caught up with him. Verse 12. Since he was living in Sodom. Just hang on a minute. When did that happen? Do you remember last week, chapter 13, verse 12? Have a look there. Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. When did Lot decide it would be a good idea to pack up his tent and move into a new apartment off the town square in Sodom? Didn't he stop to consider the consequences? But isn't that perhaps the sort of thing we do too? We get a bit too close to sin, and then before we know it, we're living in it. We come up with an excuse for a certain behavior or a certain thought pattern, and we think... Oh, this must be just about acceptable. God will let me off this once. God knows just how difficult it is in my life right now. He knows how hard it is to be kind of amongst the cities of the plain and just in a tent. He knows my background and circumstances. He can't expect me to stop this right now or to start that right now. But the longer we stay in the tent near Sodom, the longer we stay as close to the line as we can get, the more likely it is we'll pack up the tent and move into Sodom. Is it any surprise that Lot is taken captive by a king from Shinar? You know where Shinar is? Remember chapter 11, verse 2? It's the place where they built the Tower of Babel. He's got too close to a godless world, and now he is its prisoner. Reminds me of what James says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What about uh, John's words? Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. You see, Lot chose the green and pleasant pastures of Sodom. He chose worldly wealth at the expense of being devoted to God. And he allowed his greed, perhaps, to justify his actions. And the monster of sin grew in him until he reaped what he'd sown, captivity and slavery and the prospects of death at the hands of these enemies. I wonder if you can perhaps see a little bit of Lot's lostness in yourself. If we're already Christian people, I wonder if there's a part of our lives where we know we've just gone from too near Sodom to in Sodom. I wonder if there's a place in our life where we are excusing our sin or delaying our repentance, where we are choosing the attractions of the world over a sacrificial devotion to God. And if you're not um, a Christian believer this morning, I wonder if anything of Lot's story and experience echoes with your own life. Do you sometimes find it hard to reach your own moral standards? And you sense that if God does exist, your excuses just won't cut it. But you just push that thought out of your mind. Because you don't want to admit that you're lost like Lot was too. Well, Lot's lostness, that's scene one. The second scene begins to reveal the solution that he needed and that we need. Um, second, Abraham's attack. Abraham hears about the disaster and what could he, what's he going to do? Well, it would be easy to leave Lot to his fate, to wash his hands of Lot. He's been trouble all along anyway. But Abraham steps up to the challenge. Verse 14. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So he is massively outnumbered, I assume. They've got more than 318 men amongst them. But these 318, they're no weekend warriors. They chase down the conquering kings all the way north and they launch a surprising night attack. So you see on the map, the battle's down there at the bottom of the Dead Sea and they go all the way north to Dan in the north of Israel and then to Hobah, which is off the map north of Damascus. Talk about a turnaround. Before, uh, you can imagine them, they're there, they're back um, in the north, they're, they're, pre- they're scheduling a national holiday, they're preparing for a victory parade, and then during the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and routed them, pursuing them as far north as Hobah, north of Damascus. They are smashed by this little nomadic shepherd and his 318 men. To the greater victor go the spoils. You see verse 16, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Not one person, not one possession is missing. It's not spelt out just yet in the text. It will be later, but we're meant to see surely that God is the victor here. God gives the the battle, the, the winner to the battle. Do you remember how in chapter 12, verse 3, he said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Well, I don't think these Mesopotamian kings set out to curse Abraham, but they treated him as their enemy when they took his nephew as their prisoner. And so no wonder God uses Abraham to curse them in return, to bring judgment back on their own heads. God's promises 
are being fulfilled. Lot is saved by God through Abraham. It's another picture in miniature of an even greater rescue. Because you and I are saved by God through Christ. We can't save ourselves from our own foolish and sinful choices. We can't receive the blessing that that God promises to the world through Abraham on our own merits. We just don't deserve it. But God's blessing and forgiveness do come to us through Abraham's great descendant, through Jesus Christ. Abraham was a nomadic shepherd. He had 318 men. Jesus Christ famously called himself the good shepherd. Abraham snatched Lot out of their hands. Jesus said, no one will ever snatch any of my sheep out of my hands. But Abraham was a warrior also, and he fought this great battle. And Jesus too came to fight a great battle for us. On one occasion, um, Jesus had been healing people, casting out demons, and the people said of him, by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebub, he drives out demons. Jesus answered, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. See, Jesus came to bind up Satan. He is the greater warrior who snatches us out of our captors' hands. See, we we may not be in need of exorcism like the people Jesus met were. We may not be on a military transport north like Lot was, but by nature we do belong to Satan's household. Our rebellion against God doesn't leave us in a spiritual Switzerland. It lines us up on an axis of evil, enemies of God. But to the greatest victor go the spoils. Abraham was in Mamre, and he looked from Mamre to Dan, and he knew, I cannot leave my relative to perish. And he pursues Lot's captors, and he he routs them by night. Jesus looked further. He looked from heaven to earth to the grave and back again for you and me, his brothers and sisters. And he fought our captor in the middle of the day when night fell to save us from death and hell and judgment. Abraham's attack is a little pointer to Jesus' victory, but it's not the only way this passage points us forward to our Savior. The last scene, I think, is perhaps one of the most miniature and yet most beautiful pictures of Jesus, our Savior, and his glory anywhere in the Old Testament. So third, Melchizedek's message. Melchizedek's message. Abraham comes home, and the king of Sodom comes to meet him. Maybe he's still kind of dripping in tar. He hasn't had time for a shower yet. And before King Sodom can speak, a surprise visitor gets a word in first. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people, and keep the goods for yourself. So Abraham is offered goods from these two kings. Simple provisions, just bread and wine for his exhausted men from Melchizedek and all the riches of Sodom from its king. And he accepts the former, and he sends the latter packing 
with his tail between his legs. Why does he do that? Just remember last chapter, he had no problem at all taking treasure from Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does he send Pharaoh, um, King Sodom, packing? Well, I think it must be because he's heard God speak to him through Melchizedek. Uh, interestingly, chapters 12 to 22, uh, God speaks audibly and personally in every single of one of those chapters, but he doesn't in this chapter. And yet he clearly speaks through Melchizedek. Melchizedek, first of all, repeats God's promise to bless Abraham. He says, blessed be Abraham by God most high. And then he assures Abraham that his victory was God's blessing, blessing in action. He says, praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. Melchizedek clearly stands in a different league to all the other nine kings in this story. They are all godless, but he worships the creator of heaven and earth, God most high. He is Abraham's spiritual ally. But he's also Abraham's better. He's not just a king, he's a priest, a priest king. And he represents people before God. That's what priests do. And, and so Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he's got. He knows he's in the presence of someone greater than himself. And that is the thought that David picks up about a thousand years later in that song we read together. So a song written by a king about an even greater king, about the Messiah. A king who will rule forever and crush his people's enemies. But where exactly is that king going to rule? Let's find out. Would you, um, you, I don't think we're going to go back to Genesis 14. So turn to page 613 with me, back to Psalm 110. So page 613, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend his mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Where will he reign? From Zion. What is Zion? It's Jerusalem, which before it became known as Jerusalem was Salem, where Melchizedek is from. And Salem means peace. The book of Hebrews says he's king of peace. This king will ensure that there are no more rogue states, no more threats of invasion, no more defensive alliances. This king, God's Messiah, will reign and rule forever, and his enemies will never rise again. But who is he? Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, this is a priest king like Melchizedek, and he, but he won't just rule and crush God's enemies. If he were to do that, we would be as helpless as those kings who are up to their neck in tar. Instead, this king, because he is a priest, will represent us before God, and he will guarantee our acceptance by him. How is he going to do that? Well, we could um, have a very long sermon now because the writer of the Hebrews spends three chapters thinking about this. Um, but um, we're going to turn there. We're just going to look at one short section in Hebrews 7. So turn with me to page 1205.
Hebrews chapter 7, page 1205 and verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Jesus' dad was a carpenter, not a priest. He didn't have priesthood in his blood. Just like Melchizedek had no backstory, no family tree. Isn't that odd? In a book, the book of Genesis, that is full of family trees. And he has no exit date from the Bible story. He appears and then just is gone. So Jesus, God says to Jesus through David, you are a priest forever. Every other priest died, but Jesus died and rose again and lives forever. And so as Hebrews says, he is always able to represent us before God. And what is more, he is not only the priest, but the sacrifice. Remember, Melchizedek brings bread and wine. Now, I think that that's simply provisions for exhausted men. And yet, isn't it also a wonderful picture of the provision that we have for the future? The night before Jesus died, when he fought his toughest battle, he shared bread and wine with his disciples. He fought his toughest battle, not with 318, but all alone. And he set us free from the captivity to sin and death and judgment. And of course, this morning, we share bread and wine together to remind one another of that victory and sacrifice. What a privilege it must have been for Abraham to spend just a moment with this king, Melchizedek, this man who he knew was so much greater than him. And no wonder he gives him 10% of everything. What an even greater wonder it is for us to hear Melchizedek's message and realize we can spend all of this life and all of eternity with the great priest king, with Jesus Christ. And shouldn't we give to him our very, very best? So Lot's lostness, Abraham's attack, Melchizedek's message. In a sense, it's the kind of gospel, the Christian story in miniature. But that's not entirely fair because it, it actually blows up the picture of the Christian story. It doesn't make it smaller, it makes it bigger and gives us a sense of just how wide and deep and long and wonderful it is. I wonder if we can see ourselves in that story this morning. I wonder if we can see our lostness in Lot's lostness and our need for a saviour, those mistakes we make, the way in which we get captured by a godless world, and the way in which we head for trouble. And can we see more than that, the wonderful victory that our saviour wins for us? And can we see the glory of that wonderful saviour? He's in the order of Melchizedek. So as it says in Hebrews 7 verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. But because of Jesus, we have a better hope 
by which we draw near to God. Let me lead us in a prayer. Uh, One day, Father God, Jesus said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And when he'd risen from the dead on the road to Emmaus with those couple of disciples, he opened their hearts so that they could understand how the scriptures pointed to him. And we thank you for the way in which this particular scripture, this long-forgotten battle, points us to the gospel and points us to Christ. And we pray that you would give us encouragement and hope as we meditate upon these things, as we carry these truths with us into the week. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.